Welcome to People's Church Podcast. There's one book that if you carry it across uh, many borders in this world, they're going to stop you with this book. They will. They will stop you. And why they're going to stop you is because you're not bringing that into our country. In fact, there are countries, you can't just take the book, and if you are caught with the book, your life could be on the line. You say, that actually exists? Yes, it does. It exists in some Islamic rural countries, and it exists in North Korea. Anybody want to take a Bible to North Korea? South Korea is interesting. It's a Bible-based, it's a, a, a functioning Christian uh, community, very strong in South, in South Korea. In fact, I don't know if you're aware, but we have a, a South Korean church that we've started. We started that some time back. It's gaining momentum. They're meeting upstairs right now and started earlier than you did. And uh, they're great in that. But you go across the border up there. Do you know what they do, though? They'll take scriptures, some of the Christians in South Korea, they'll take scriptures, they put them in balloons, like kind of these little, fill them with some helium, and then send them up and let the wind currents carry scriptures. But if you're in North Korea and you go ahead and you pick up some of those scriptures, you're in big, big trouble. Re-education camp coming. Why is the Bible such a tool of, can we say, uh, response and reaction that powers that be don't like it much. Why is it such a threat to people? I want to give you a little challenge. Uh, how, what would it be like this week if tomorrow morning, if you start your work tomorrow morning, and if you work in a place with others that's in a public setting for yourself, you've got a team around you. Uh, I, I challenge you to take a Bible, like a good size, make sure they know it's a Bible, right? Just walk it into work. And walk in tomorrow morning with this, carry it around proudly. If you have a desk, put it on the middle of your desk. If you have a workstation, put it in the middle of your workstation. And just see how people would respond to that. If you want to do a other test first, just take any other book that you like, some kind of novel, some kind of thing, and you carry it in. Maybe you do that tomorrow. And then Tuesday, take this. And notice the difference in reaction when you carry in a Bible. Do you think there'd be a difference in reaction? That difference in reaction is because they understand the uniqueness of this book. This book is, is amazingly unique in, in, in all of literature because it's not just literature. The language is used on the basis of God-breathed truth. So we're going to be diving in today to talk about why you can trust your Bible. We want you to trust your Bible. Many, many Christians are having a hard time trusting their, their Bible. And yet it is the most read book in all of history. It really is. It's the best-selling book in all of history. It's the most translated book in all of history. And it is something that they even tell us is the most stolen book in all of history. I don't know why they go steal Bibles, but you saw, I think, a thing here earlier that told us that this one is shoplifted more than any other book. Don't shoplift your Bible, okay? If you need one, we'll get you one. But don't shoplift it. The Bible is unique because it is, touches the life in a whole different way. In 2 Timothy 3, we read, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I just want the front end. That's what I want you to look at. I want you to zero in on that word breathe. That's, that's the key. All scripture is God breathed. Sometimes translations put the word inspiration, but it's not solid enough. It's not just inspired to provide you inspiration. This is the very breath of God. See, when I'm making noise right now with my voice, as I talk, what's happening is breath is going over top of my vocal cords and somehow it works that they vibrate in such a way that I can speak to you and your ears can understand, well, I hope, what's being said. That's, what trans, that's, what, that's what's happening as we speak. So when it says that, that the scriptures are God-breathed, it means that this word of God, the scriptures, 
is God's breath coming over top of his own vocal cords. By the way, it's interesting. Here's another reason why the Bible is so unique and powerful to you as a believer. is because your existence is also God-breathed. And the existence of all things is God-breathed. God spoke the word and this happened. God spoke the word and this happened. And God spoke a word about you. So you've got a match. You've got the word of God, the Bible, where God has spoken uh, across his vocal cords, where he has brought his breath, his life into the words of the scriptures. It's the same picture of him speaking into life, all of creation and all things around us. So this isn't just any normal little book. In the Greek, the word is theonoustos, which just means simply God breathed. Just God breathed. Theo and noustos. The Bible is God breathed. What does that mean? Folks, it's not just inspiration. It's, it's his life in the words. This is far greater than just reading any other book. In Psalm 119, it says, all of your commands can be trusted. So everything in the Bible can be trusted as true because it comes from God. It's God-breathed. And if it's God-breathed, then everything in it can be trusted. Because here's one thing about God. God cannot lie. It's not possible for him. We learn that. The scriptures tell us that. God cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. There are things God cannot do. God cannot deny himself. God cannot lie. So already the words that are on the pages of your Bible are coming from a source of life that cannot lie. It can only tell the truth. So we're going to take a look at seven reasons, seven reasons why you can trust your Bible. The first is that this Bible is historically correct. The Bible isn't just doctrinally correct or theologically correct or accurate regarding morals and regarding ethics. It's true history. Real people, real places, real time. It's true historically. Why is that even important to us? Because the Bible tells us this, simply God cannot lie. So we can't find a, a chink in the armor on this. If this Bible has one lie in it, then immediately everything else is in question mark. Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie because God is truth. The only reason the universe works is because God is a God of truth, which means stuff is true all the time, not some of the time. Imagine, for instance, if we said the truth of the law of gravity is not really true. It's only going to function Tuesdays and Thursdays. It kind of makes one Monday, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturday, Sundays a little weird. You wouldn't be able to sit in your chair. Everything would float off the planet and freeze. I mean, if gravity ain't working, you ain't working. Do you get it? One law. One law. It must be consistently true for you to exist. If it's only partially true, then frankly, you're, you, you can't even live with that environment. You will perish in that environment. And so when we talk about the Bible being true and historically accurate, we're saying, in essence, that these things are consistently true all the time. The laws of physics are true. God thought them up. He created them. And they are true all of the time. The laws of mathematics are true, not partially true. And they are true all of the time. So when God created all of these things, then he runs the universe on these unchangeable laws. Just imagine if you were to suspend any one of those laws of physics. Everything breaks down. You take one of the laws, one of the things of God, then you can say that's an absolute lie. Everything breaks down. If this book has one lie in it, folks, then you can't call it God's book. It has to be true. Because he cannot lie. It is, not, it is not a book of God 
if it has lies. Psalm 33, 4 says, the word of the Lord is right and true. That's not only right about salvation, it's true and right about history. So how do we know that the Bible is historically accurate? By the same way that you know that any other history is accurate. You must go to the test of good history. And one of those great tests is, is this from eyewitness accounts? Or is, it, or is this a historian who would say in this written down, he'd write it sometime, you know, a thousand years later or something. Is he writing it second hand, third hand? Is it a legend written down years and years after the proposed event? The Bible is primarily eyewitness accounts. That's why it's good history. Moses was there when the Red Sea split. Joshua was there when the walls of Jericho fall. The disciples of Jesus sat in the upper room and saw the resurrected Jesus appear. And then they wrote down what happened and we read about it. Matthew was there. He wrote it down. John was there. He wrote it down. Peter was there. He told a guy by the name of Mark and he wrote it down. The gospel of Mark. And Luke talked to all of them, including Jesus' mother, and heard about what happened. So it's eyewitness accounts of what had taken place. The other test of history by which we know that the Bible is accurate is the extreme care with which the Bible was copied. You may have heard people say, I'm, not, I'm sure it was right when it was first written, but it's been passed down generation after generation. All these changes have come in. If you've ever heard that, people are, are, are really got the wrong starting point. They just haven't taken the time to study it, to look into it. When you look into it, you find out the extreme care with which the Bible was copied. The Old Testament copyists, they were called scribes. When they would copy these scrolls from one to the other, they would copy just like the copier in the office here and a copier in your office. It was to be exact. It had to be absolutely exact. They had this long list of rules they had to go by just to make sure of its accuracy and, and keeping it exact. Rules like this. When they had a scroll, they had a specified number of columns throughout, so it would always be the same. And the length of those columns always had to be from 48 to 60 inches in length. And it always had to be exactly 30 letters wide, so they could always check it out. To make sure that it was always right, they had this rule that you had to copy letter by letter, not word by word. It was done letter by letter. You know on your phone when you text, how many have ever gotten in trouble with text when you're speaking into it and sent it? And you say, I didn't say that, honest, honest, I didn't say that. I do that a lot and I find myself apologizing, honest, I didn't say that, I, I didn't intend it. Oh, I'm so sorry, you know. How many know what I'm talking about? It gets to the point that, you know, like, I can talk into that thing at times. I think I've been clear, and I look, and I don't even recognize what it is. The, this is where they are not at. They are taking a look at this from a letter-to-letter -letter basis. They are exacting. It must be absolutely right. They wanted to make sure that that didn't happen like it does for us on these text messages. And they went by these tests to make sure it was right. So they knew in a book how many letters of the alphabet were in each book. Isn't that amazing? Every, how many letters of the alphabet, the Hebrew for the old, how many letters of the alphabet were in each book? So for instance, our letter A, they would know that there were 1,653 A's in this book this particular book. And if it had 1,654 when they counted it, they threw the scroll away, started all over. The math had to always work. They would never, ever call it complete if there was any kind of error when they would copy these things. They were so exact, they knew the middle letter of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In the rate, they know exactly the middle letter of the whole Old Testament also. After they copied all of it, they would go to that middle letter and count forward and backward. And if it didn't come out exactly the number it should, they would throw it away. 
and they just start over. That's how exacting they were. One of the ways we can see that they were exact is through something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've heard of those probably. And what is so significant about those scrolls? They were scrolls found uh, within the desert caves around the, uh, the, the Dead Sea. They had been kept in these urns um, in a very dry place, so they lasted a long time. They were written about 100 years before Jesus. All of the Old Testament books are there represented except for Esther. When they found those scrolls, the earliest copies that we had before that were 900 years after Jesus, many of those books. So there's this 1,000 year gap. All of a sudden we went to get, we get to check out how much change came in those 1,000 years. You wonder how much. Well, they say about 5%. That was almost all though, just spelling of words had changed and the spelling of the names. And so because of additional or less than in the names or within the words, we have that 5% movement. Over 1,000 years, these scribes were proved to be right as they copied again and again and again and made it right. This is another proof of historical accuracy of the Bible. Another proof is in archaeology. You look at archaeology and it proves again and again that the places and the people, all that the Bible talks about are true. It's not fiction. They existed. You can go find these places. You can, you, we've dug up these places. The Oropagus, where Paul was. The theater in Athens, where there was this riot. We've dug that up. We can see them today. The Pool of Siloam, where the blind man was healed. Portions of Herod's temple. All these places that were talked about in the Bible. They've dug them up. We can see them. The book of Acts is all about historical accuracy. Luke's a, a historian as well as a doctor. He wrote the book of Acts. He talks about 54 cities, 39 countries, and nine different islands. Complete historical accuracy to any present day geography. One of the great things about how archaeology works with the Bible is how it is again and again shown that actually the Bible is more accurate than even our idea of history. There have been many times when we've had an idea of what is historical and said the Bible's got to be wrong. And the Bible has proved itself to be right. For instance, a long time ago, historians said, we're not even sure that, that, that there was a guy named Solomon lived in the Old Testament. And we're certainly sure he didn't have horses like it's talked about. They only had camels back then. So that can't be right until at Megiddo they discover one of Solomon's chariot cities with thousands of stables for horses. So the Bible was proved right. One of the greatest, greatest examples of this is where, where the Bible's accurate in history and then historians and archaeologists catch up because of their fresh discoveries is an empire called the Hittites. There's this whole empire called the Hittites talked about in the Bible that was not talked about anywhere else. So for centuries, historians said the Bible just made it up. Just a made-up fairyland of Hittites. Until the early 1900s, a professor by the name of Hugo Winkler discovered at, Buc I gotta get this right, Bakatsi, 10,000 clay tablets at the capital of the Hittites. Now everyone believes in the Hittites. In fact, check it out, just Google it today, later, not now. Google it later you're going to find that the Hittites now, and they'll even say, I read some of the articles on it, they'll even say, you know, it was through the Bible archaeology that we discovered this empire. It is accurate. Let's talk about a big one I want to spend the most time on today. It is scientifically accurate. Because the truth is God always sets up the laws of science. And he made sure that his word does not contradict the laws of science. It's not written as a scientific manual. But every, every book you read has scientific facts underneath what they're writing. Even novels. 
oh, it was a wonderful night on the beach, the sun was setting, and the romance was in the air. You know, in that statement right there is science. Sun is setting. We've got science. The, the fact is, is science and is just basically when you take a look at it, the pursuit of understanding the world and the realms around us. It's a, it's a thing of discovery. The Bible does not uh, in any way call itself a book of science, but any time that science is involved in the stories or in within any of the teachings of scripture, science is honored. The Bible was not given to be a textbook on it. You don't study the Bible to build a rocket. It doesn't use scientific language. But it never, never, never gives bad science. Not once in over 1,600 years in which this book was written, it was written over 1,600 years, does it give bad science. Imagine that, written over 1,600 years, and every time you're going to write, you're going you're gonna to write based on how you understand science right now. Not once in all of these years has it ever contravened true science. In fact, it is always ahead of science. There are things in the Bible, the Bible says were true, that we've just discovered 100 years, 200, 300 years ago. We're just now coming into some of that. Johann Kepler, the famous mathematician, the famous astronomer, he said science is simply thinking God's thoughts after him. In other words, God established the laws of physics and then we discover them. God established the laws of biology and we discover them. God established the laws of mathematics and we discover them. One of the reasons why we know the Bible can be trusted is because it is scientifically accurate. And the reason it's accurate is because the laws of the universe were invented by God. So he obviously understands them even in the years past when we didn't. Because for thousands of years we've misunderstood different things. One thing about truth is... It never is going to change. It just, it won't change. But one thing about science is it constantly changes. There is nothing more worthless right now than an obsolete science book. Um, you know right now that your kids are not using the same science book that you did when you went to school. Why do you think that is? It's because science is constantly on discovery. And what they think here is always going to fall short and then they discover more and so, whoa, now we understand it this way. Now we understand it this way. Now we understand it this way. A lot of things in the book when it comes to science that, that your kids are studying right now uh, are no longer even believed from your grade three science book or grade seven science book or grade 12 science book. How many here want a five-year-old computer manual and want to read it? I can find you one. If you want one, I'm sure I can find you one. But why are they not front and center? You don't want a five-year-old computer book. Why don't you want a five-year-old computer book? Because your computer's probably one-year-old. And there's been such change already. How in the world are you going to make use of something that's constantly morphing and changing as science advances in the discovery and then puts it into the practical use in our lives? You can find, by the way, any of those books in garage sales. Just go, you'll find them. And they'll probably give them to you free, they should. Science, things that we thought we believed, we now know more about it. In fact, in medical science, it happens all of the time. How many articles have you read that now, say, uh, that, that now say that something you thought was good for you before now causes some real problems with the human body? It causes cancer. It causes, oh, this could lead you to dementia. There's, I mean, how, how many articles have you read that talks about the change? We once believed this, but no, now we know this. We thought that it was fine for a pregnant woman to take certain things. And 10 years later, we find out, don't take this. 
Science constantly changes. In Paris, in the, in the Louvre in Paris, it's known as an art museum, but you might not be aware of it. It's also one of the biggest libraries in the world. In the Louvre Library, there's one section that has over five kilometers of obsolete science books. Because that's the nature of discovery. Discovery means we constantly are pursuing into new things and discovering new things. That's science. That's what they should be. Because stuff that they thought was scientifically fact 1,500 years ago was disproven 1,000 years ago, and what we thought 1,000 years ago was disproven 750 years ago, and what we thought for 25 years is disproven 10 years ago, and what we thought 10 years ago is now changed to today. If you've been reading the Bible 1,000 years ago, or 700 years ago, or 500 years ago, what the Bible says would not have matched the science of that day, because the science of that day was not up to date. The Bible says in Psalm 148, let every created thing, that's the whole universe, give praise to the Lord for he issued his command. God set the rules in motion, the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of physics, and they came into being. He established them forever and ever and his orders will never be revoked. You know the second law of thermodynamics doesn't work today and not work tomorrow. It stays the same. It always works because truth doesn't change. In 1861, true. Here was a very famous book that, that came out in 1861 that was called this 51 Incontrovertible true Proofs that the Bible is Scientifically Inaccurate. It's a very famous book. 51 incontrovertible scientific facts that we know this is in 1861 that the Bible does not agree with and we know that the Bible is scientifically inaccurate. The only problem is today, 150 years later, you can't find a single scientist on the planet who would agree with any of those incontrovertible facts. They've all been disproven by science itself. Truth does not change. One of the proofs that we know that this book is not simply man-made, that this book came from God, is that God directed men and women to talk and speak and write things down, and we know it's the word of God, is what's not in it. What's not in it? Because if this were a human book, you would expect it to be filled with scientific facts of the prevailing day. But they're not here. They're not in the book. For instance, for thousands and thousands of years, people believed the earth was flat. I understand there's still a group of flat earth believers. It wasn't until Copernicus and Galileo and Columbus that people realized the world's not flat. It's round. It's a sphere. It's a ball. So you would expect the Bible to say the earth is flat because it was in existence and being written during those thousands of years when everybody thought the earth was flat. So if you're going to write about the earth, the, the, the Bible should, if it, if it was just man-made and not God, uh, God's word, it's going to have the errors of the modern science of that era. But we don't find in the Bible that it says that it is flat. We find the opposite. Long before anybody knew it. When that was written, nobody believed it. But God said it. And it is true. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 22. God is enthroned above the sphere of the earth. I guess they should have read that part. Must have missed that part. For thousands of years, people believed that the earth had to be held up by something. Now, this is quite funny, but it's actually, you can look it up, it's true. Depending on the culture you were in, you got certain different beliefs in what held up the earth. We see here that God is enthroned upon above the sphere on the earth, but I'm going to show you something else about that. If you were Greek, in Greek culture, you believed this. You believe that the world was held up by a giant named Atlas. Everybody knows that name, right? The guy with the globe. And 
Atlas. And we all know who Atlas is. He holds up the world. Part of the Bible's written in Greek, and Atlas isn't in the Bible. Why? Why is Atlas not recorded in the Bible? Because it's not true. So it's not in the Bible. You would expect that during that time it would have found, found its way somehow into the Bible, but it's not there. For thousands of years, the Hindus believed that the earth sat on the back of giant elephants. And that when the elephants moved, that's what caused earthquakes. What did the elephants stand on? I'm not making this up. This is true. Look it up. They believed that the giant elephant stood on the back of a giant sea turtle. And the giant sea turtle stood on the back of a giant sea serpent who swam through a cosmic sea. That was the prevailing attitude in the world for hundreds if not thousands of years. It's not in the Bible. Even though the Bible was being written during this time. Why does the Bible leave out the lies? The Bible tells us what Mo that Moses was skilled and schooled in all of the wisdom and of the ancient Egyptians because Moses was adopted as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So he went to the best schools in ancient Egypt and was taught what was prevailing science of that day. The Egyptians were just absolutely brilliant. I mean, they built the pyramids. They're, they're, they are masters at architecture, engineering, astronomy. But the ancient Egyptians were dead wrong on what held up the earth because ancient e Egypt believed that the earth was held up by five pillars. Certainly Moses was schooled in that science because he went to the best schools of the land as Pharaoh's grandson. Yet not once in scripture do you find the earth is being held up by five pillars. Why? Because it's not true. So it didn't make it into the Bible. The prevailing science of the day didn't make it there. In fact, the oldest known writing to man is likely the book of Job. The oldest literature in existence today that we know about. Job. First book written as far as when we talk about timelines. The books of the Bible are not chronological, just in the timelines. Job is the oldest book. In Job 26 verse 7, the oldest known literature in the human race says this, God stretches the sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Who told Job? How did he know that? Everybody knows the earth uh, is flat and it's on the back of pillars. Why? Because the Bible only always tells the truth. Not by what it just puts in, but what it doesn't put in. When it's written over 1,600 years and you don't have these fallacies and these lies, uh, scientifically speaking, it with represented within the scriptures themselves, it tells you the accuracy of this document and that it far exceeds man's knowledge and man's capability. It is God's breath over his own vocal cords. I'm reinforcing this because it's just sheer nonsense to say that the Bible is scientifically inaccurate. It just tells me you don't know the Bible. You've not really looked at it. You don't understand it. For instance, for years, it was the accepted science that there were about a thousand stars in the universe. That they, that they could be counted. That the number of stars were, were finite. This is over thousands of years that this was believed. And in fact, in 150 uh, BC, a man named Hipparchus counted them and he wrote a very famous dissertation saying that there were 1,022 stars in the universe. That's it. And it was an accepted fact for a long, long time there were only 1,022 stars in the universe. But it doesn't say that in the Bible. 300 years later, 150 years, 80, a guy named Ptolemy does it again. And he comes out and he says that Hipparchus is a nut. There are 1,026. He found four more. Stars in the universe. But it doesn't say that again in the Bible. They just launched the James Webb telescope this last year. They're looking now as, uh, just out oh, what just trillions and trillions and you know that one light year is I forget how many trillion miles it's ridiculous this space that is covered within space but you you take a look 
instead at what the Bible says in Jeremiah 33:22 concerning this particular thing of stars. It says the number of stars is infinite. And that's basically what they're telling us now. Can't count them. They're, they're guessing, folks. They, they're saying, Hubble picked up for sure about 100 billion galaxies. Not stars, galaxies. And in the galaxies, there's hundreds of billions of stars. You get in the picture? Webb has now pushed that out and they're saying, oh, there's probably at least 200 billion galaxies now. Some have estimated as high as 400 billion. With billions of stars inside of each galaxy. The Bible tells you the numbers of stars are just infinite. Ptolemy didn't read that one. For many years, people believed that too much blood in your body would make you sick. For thousands of years, this was the accepted custom, and they did what was called bloodletting. Have you ever heard of that? Bloodletting. It's just literally where they bleed you. Doctors would cut a sick person, bleed them thinking that was going to make them healthy. That was accepted science. Everybody knew that was true. It wasn't. But everybody knew that was true science. It was because of Hippocrates. And for 2,000 years since Hippocrates, they believed that all illness came from four bodily fluids. Yellow bile, black bile, red blood, or blue phlegm. Doesn't sound very attractive, I don't think it is. Those four fluids also controlled your temperament. Now you know, you can explain your partner. You're having a black bile moment, aren't you? Yeah, well it's better than your yellow bile moment. I'm gonna start a fight right here. Nobody believes that anymore. For 2,000 years, that was scientific proof, so people thought you had to bleed people to get the bad stuff out. Many people don't know that, our, that, that, that it went right into the modern era. In fact, there are cultures around the world that still do this. The first president of the United States, George Washington, they bled him. He had a heart issue. So they bled him three times in short order, and he died. They bled him to death. Check it out. That's even how recent you see it in mainstream intelligence. Today we know you give people blood when they're sick. We do the exact opposite of what they did for thousands of years. You give people blood because we know where the life comes from. It's called a transfusion. And we give people blood today. But they didn't know that for thousands of years. But the Bible knew it. Back in Leviticus 17, thousands and thousands of years ago, Leviticus 17, 11, God said this, the life of every creature is in its blood. How did Moses know that? We didn't even know that blood circulates until around 1650. It wasn't until the 17th century when William Harvey discovered that blood circulates. For thousands of years, nobody even thought it circulated. Everybody bought into Galen, who was a Greek doctor. For 2,000 years, they accepted his idea, basically, that the heart was the source of heat. But nobody knew it actually pumped blood. Yet thousands of years ago, the Bible said the life of every creature is in its blood. They should have just read the Bible. During the Middle Ages, there was the bubonic, bubonic plague. The bubonic plague killed one-fourth of Europe. One out of every four people died during the Black Plague because we didn't understand germs. We didn't understand contagion. We didn't understand infection. We didn't understand quarantining people. So they had sick people with the bubonic plague who were contagious sleeping right next to healthy people and people just kept dying because we didn't know about germs and contagion. So it became an epidemic and then a pandemic. They should have read the Bible because thousands and thousands of years before the bubonic plague, God said in Leviticus 13.4, put an infected person in quarantine for seven days. By the way, notice that. Put an infected person in quarantine, not the healthy. You got the message. 
That's thousands of years before we even know what germs are. God was saying, here's how you take care of people who get infected with an illness. You put them outside the camp for seven days. If they're still sick after seven days, then you put them out for another seven days. No one understood quarantining the sick so that things weren't passed along until more recent history. But God was right, as he always is. The Bible is always scientifically accurate. It, literally, you can go on and on and on. It is always ahead of science. It, is, it is, lays out things that, that is the message of the Bible in a proper framework that honors proper science and it doesn't buy in to the crazy emergence of science and discovery through hundreds and thousands of years. It's always ahead of science. Proverbs 30, 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God is flawless. But every word of God is amazingly flawless. Just catch that. The words of the Lord are flawless like silver refined in a furnace of clay and purified seven times. So, we know we can trust it historically. We know archaeology. And we know scientifically. But we also know that the Bible, we can trust it because it's prophetically accurate. What does that mean? It means that the predictions in the Bible always come true. I get a kick out of all these shows on Nostradamus and all this stuff. To me, it's craziness. You know, you take this and, and, and you take these, these uh, very indistinct, diffused words and try to apply them to a headline of the day. That's just absolute crazy. When it comes to scriptures, actually, last weekend we covered prophecy out at the out at the weekend away. And I gave each of the attenders to start off with 55 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' first coming. And we put the scriptures and then we, we, where it was prophesied and then we gave them the scriptures that where it was fulfilled. There was a, in Southern California, I'm trying to remember which university did a, did some calcula, calculating on this. And they only took eight prophecies. And they said, for these eight prophecies of foretelling Jesus' first coming, for them to be fulfilled in one man at the, same, at the right time, right place, in so detail as these prophecies give it, it would, it would not be one out of 10 chance of getting it. That would be like a 10% chance. It'd be like if I, if, I, if I blindfolded you and I said, tore up 10 pieces of paper and said, I've marked one of them. You've got a 10% to pull that out of the hat. Give it a shot. No, no, they did their calculating. Here's what they came up with. For these, even just these eight prophecies, by the way, there's, there's up to 300 of them. For them to be fulfilled within one man, in one moment, in one time, in such detail, all of these comic characteristics that have to be matched. It would be one in 10 to the 17th power. You know what that is? It's a big number. So they gave us a picture. Here, here's what it would be like. Coming from Southern California, they say, let's cover Texas in silver dollars. Two feet thick. The entire state, two feet thick. Mark one coin, blindfold a man, turn him loose. And it, whenever you want to, bend down and pick up the coin. One to 10 to the 17th power. We have 300 prophecies for Jesus' first coming that we can look and say fulfilled, checkmark, fulfilled, checkmark. Crucifixion, before it was ever known or that word attached, described how he would die, when he would die, where he would be born. All kinds of prophecies. If you want a copy of that, we can get one for you. I gave it out last weekend. And we can, if you want, let us know at the office. Hey, tell them at the office I would like a copy of that in paper. Uh, or if you want digital, we'll make sure we get it for you, fire it off to you. 
It's absolutely fascinating to look at it. These prophecies are fulfilled in great detail. What are the odds of you making all of those 300 predictions and getting them right? It's just astronomical. Second Peter says, no prophecy ever originated from humans. Instead, it was given by the Holy Spirit as humans spoke under God's direction. During Bible times, nobody wanted to be a prophet. You know why? Because the law was this in Israel. If you're going to be a prophet in Israel, you're going to be a, call yourself a prophet of God, you had to be correct 100% of the time. If you were wrong just once, then you were considered a false prophet and you would be put to death. So nobody was signing up, you know? Nobody just wanted to be a prophet because you had to be 100% accurate. There's a lot of people that are claiming to be prophets today. By the way, let me just give you a little tip. Don't ever trust a psychic who asks for your name. If they ask for your credit card, say, tell me the number first. That's not the way God is with prophecy. It's prophetically accurate. Matthew 26, but this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in scripture. Jesus said that. He's saying, I'm making sure it's all the prophets that spoke about what's happening. It's all being done to fulfill those words. Revelation 22, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and they're true. The Lord sent his angel to show his servant the things that must soon take place. It is prophetically accurate. And the odds of all these prophecies happening the way they did over a thousand years are absolutely astronomical. The fourth reason I know the Bible is trustworthy is because it is thematically unified. It has the same theme through the entire book from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. It writes about the theme of redemption from Genesis right to the very end. And Jesus is the star in Genesis and in every book written after all the way to the book of Revelation. It is a unified thematic book. What's the big deal about that? Uh, a lot of books are going to carry the same theme from beginning to end. But they'll be written by one man. This was written over 1,600 years by 40 different authors. The Quran is written by one man, Muhammad. The Analects of Confucius are written by Confucius. Buddha, his writings, they're written by him. You would expect them to be uniform. But if you take 40 different people in every age and stage of life and over three continents in three different languages over 1,600 years and they got the same story and they didn't necessarily read the guy previous or the one back here or her writing over here. No, they didn't happen that way. And it is all harmonious in theme. This book was written by poets and prophets. It was, written, it was written by princes and kings, sailors and soldiers. It was written by attorneys and doctor and an MD doctor. And uh, it's written by prisoners. It's written by common people. It's, it's just amazing. All of the different stories behind the people that wrote this. And yet they come out with the very same theme. In fact, each book brings enlightenment to other books. So you can understand that book in the light of the previous book. They were written in caves, they're written on ships, they're written in homes, they're written in palaces, they're written in prisons. Yet they got the same theme. There couldn't be a more diverse group. But they were written with the same theme. It just is remarkable. Jesus said in Luke 24, beginning with Moses, meaning Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And all the prophets. That's the rest of the Old Testament. Jesus explained to them that was said, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He took them through all of the Old Testament and showed them, here I am here in Genesis. Here I am here in Exodus. 
Here I am here in Leviticus. Here I am here in Numbers. Here I am here in Deuteronomy. Here I am here in Joshua and Judges. He just walked them all through and said, here I am. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Jesus is the star, the theme, the connecting tie all the way through. The fifth way I can trust the Bible is because it's confirmed by Jesus. Jesus trusted the Bible. He proclaimed the Bible as a unique book. 518 of Matthew, Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus looks at the Bible and says, it's going to last until the end of time. It's going to accomplish what God wants to accomplish in this world. In John 10, 35, Jesus said, scripture is always true. Jesus, as he talked about that Bible, he talked about it as a real book. Talking about real people, real places. Here's a real quick list of people and places that Jesus talked about and confirmed that they were real. Jesus believed in the prophets. He talked about all the prophets being real. He talked about Daniel being real. Jesus believed in Noah, everything that happened in the flood. He talked about that. He, t- he believed in Adam and Eve. He, 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 Jesus believed in the tragedy of Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened there. He taught on all these things. He believed in Jonah and what happened there. Here's the interesting thing, particularly of these last four. Noah, Adam and Eve, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Jonah. These are the most disputed stories in the Bible by people who say it's just a bunch of fables. They're good stories, good moral stories, but they didn't really happen. Jesus believed they really happened. In fact, he used some of these as illustrations of what was going to happen in his resurrection. If Jesus uh, really believed in Jonah, I believe it happened. I don't know how God created a fish, I don't. Who could swallow a guy, but he did. And I trust in it because Jesus trusted in it. Augustine said, If you believe in the Bible what you like and you don't believe what you don't like, it's not the Bible you trust but yourself. The sixth reason that you can trust the Bible is the absolute authoritative word of God is that it's God-breathed, theonoustus. Number six, it has survived all attacks. That makes it an unusual book. The Bible is the most despised book, the most derided, the most denied, the most disputed, the most dissected, the most debated, the most outlawed, the most destroyed, the most banned book ever in history. Millions of people have died because they refused to give up their Bible. People were killed. It was illegal to own that Bible. It's still illegal in some countries today. Today, if you walk into some of these countries, you will be thrown in jail or you may even be killed for it. This Bible has been under attack for century after century after century by everything you can imagine. Yet it is still the most read book in the world, the most published book in the world, the most translated book in the world, the best-selling book in the world, and it's still making a difference in people's lives. The Bible is the greatest source, single, single source that stands alone. Bible, when it comes to music, it's the greatest single source of music. The Bible is the greatest single source of art. And the Bible is the greatest single source of architecture throughout history. If you take the Bible out of culture, you have basically destroyed most of the major music, most of the major art, and most of the major architecture for almost 2,000 years. It is the source of our culture. You speak the English language you do because of the King James Version of the Bible, which became so well versed amongst the people that it became and controlled the common language that we speak. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, Jesus said. The only thing on this planet that's going to uh, outlast the word of God is eternal. Not, you know, they're, they're, everything else is just going to burn up, but the word of God is eternal because truth is lasting forever. Voltaire, you know that name. Famous French philosopher. Brilliant guy. Smart. He was an atheist. He was just absolutely brilliant. He wrote a number of tracts deriding the Bible. Voltaire made a very famous statement in which he said, 100 years from today, the Bible will be a forgotten book. 
Everybody's forgotten that quote. After Voltaire died for nearly 100 years, his homestead was used as the book depository for the French Bible Society. They sold Bibles out of his house, folks. It's now a museum. People have forgotten Voltaire. Nobody forgets the Bible. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. 1 Peter 21, 24. The grass withers and the flowers fail. Um, more or less. How many of you, when you turn on your digital news device, go back two weeks and say, I want to read headlines from two weeks ago. But the word of God stands forever. The temporary stuff doesn't last. Truth will always be truth. Whether you believe it or not, it's the truth. I might say, I believe the moon is made of cheese. Now we know it's made of rock. And I might state to you, I still believe it's made of cheese. But you already know it's still made of rock. There was once a bumper sticker that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That, that's kind of not a smart way to say it actually. Because basically, really what you ought to say is God said it, that settles it, whether I believe it or not. I don't want that to be called immoral. It doesn't matter what I want or not. What God says is moral is moral. What God says is not moral is not moral. It's my choice. He's God, you're not. I could say to you, I don't believe in the law of gravity. That's fine. I could jump off a 214 place and, and, and not believe in the law of gravity. And we can all say, well, yeah, let's just be copacetic about this. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. I don't believe in, these, in that kind of thing. So as I'm going down 214 place, about halfway, get the seventh floor, you might be able to lean out the windows. How's it going so far? We're all really good. you're going to have a great collision with the law of gravity. See, you don't break God's laws, they break you. When I ignore what God says in this word, in this Bible, this inerrant, infallible word, when I ignore what it says, and I don't like that part, I only hurt myself. I don't hurt God, it only hurt me. The seventh one. It's the most subjective one. But it's one of my experience I have observed the most and I have enjoyed seeing the most. And I still love seeing this. It has transforming power. Nothing can change the lives of people like the Bible. Your life has been changed by it. I have watched people come out of the greatest brokenness I've watched them come out of the depths of alcoholism. I've watched them come out of the depth of, of, drug, of drug addictions. I've watched them come out of sexual addictions. I've watched, I've watched people that have come out of anger that is so severe and so much resentment and bitterness. I have watched them. I have watched very self-centered, narcissistic people who are all about themselves and didn't mind violating or abusing or misusing those around them. I have watched them change. And what did they do to change? They read the Bible. They read the Bible. Throw up uh, for me Steph Curry's uh, article. Everybody know who Steph Curry is? You know this guy? How many watch basketball? How many have ever seen a basketball? <laughs> this is one of the best players that ever played the game. Here's an article that I pulled. Steph Curry on importance of reading Bible to his kids. That's how I learned my faith. Through what? He had the Bible read to him. Are you reading the Bible yourself? Do you read it to your kids, to your grandchildren? Do you read the Bible? Do you bring the stories to them? Do you bring them up some, on some Bible knowledge? Thank you. The Bible has its power to change us. John 8, 31 to 32, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So the fundamental question we end with is this. 
the most important question you're going to ask yourself in life is, what's going to be the final authority for my life? You got to decide that. I recommend a decision right now in this moment, in this day. Is it going to be the word? Or is it going to be the world on this? Am I going to listen to what God says is true? Or am I going to listen to public opinion or my own set of feelings? Are you going to try and navigate by your feelings through truth? Who's going to be the authority in my life, God or me? Because when I say I don't really accept this book, it's not that I can't, it's that I don't want to accept it. And the reason I don't want to accept it as my authority is because I really want to be the boss. I want to be the Lord. I want to be God of my own life and I don't want God telling me what's moral or immoral, what's right, what's wrong. I want to do it my way. I want, I want to be Lord. So let me ask you, how's that working so far? Is it solving all your problems? How's your stress, worry, irritations? Are they vanished because you're God? Have you actually noticed the more that you play God, the more those other things go up because you don't have the power, the strength to play that role. You're not going to win that battle. Your arms are too short to box with God. To rebel against truth that doesn't change is kind of crazy. So the big question is what's going to be the authority of my life? And why is the inerrancy and infallibility and the flawlessness of God's word so important? Because if this book is not true, you're in a heap of trouble. So am I. Because my salvation depends on this book right here. And so does yours. This is the book that tells you your life is not an accident. Science doesn't tell you that. This is a book that tells you there is an overarching purpose for your life. Science doesn't tell you that. This is the book that tells you there is a, that, 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 this is the book that says God made you to love you, that you were created for relationship with him. This is the book that says you can be forgiven. This is the book that says your past can be forgiven and cleansed. You have a purpose for living. You can have a home in heaven. This is the book that says no matter what problem you're going through, God can use it for good in your life. It's in the book here. This is the book that says there's a reason for hope. It's all in the pages of the book. That's why when you read it and he deposits a little strength, the word, his living words, his breath can touch your soul and bring life to it because nothing else is or can and it becomes hope. If this book is a lie, you're in a heap of trouble because this is the book that tells you how to get to heaven, folks. The Bible says in Romans 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. It's talking about the way that we think. The world's view, the opinions and the attitudes of the world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So in essence, we could say you're either a conformist or a transformist. You're either conformed to the way the world thinks or you're transformed by the truth. Then you will be able to test. You'll be able to know that's how you make good decisions. You'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God's plan for your life is good. God's plan for your life is pleasing. And God's plan for your life is perfect. But you're only going to know it and live it and experience it and feed it through one thing. And it is the perfect word of God. Don't starve yourself. Don't starve your families. I want you to settle this issue today. This next week you're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn a lot about the Bible. You're going to learn a lot how to actually really dive into it. Wednesdays, you're going to have great opportunity for some, making some good relationship connections, but really, you're going to have a time of really focusing in this. This is the stuff that settles our souls, that gives us strength in life. And I want you to settle it. I want you to be clear. So let's bow our heads. You stand with me. And let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. You're not going to understand everything in the Bible. My gosh, it's God-breathed. It takes the Holy Spirit, we learn, to actually teach us, to open up scriptures to us. So let's make a prayer 
and, uh, and ask the Holy Spirit to bring alive God's word to us. And let's make a decision that says, this is going to be the thing that's going to govern and guide my decisions, my wisdom, my life. It is because you are not committed to this that you get stuck. It's because of that that life can't be breathed in. Father, as we bow our heads, you know every heart. You know how we all, Lord, have this built-in resistance to absolute truth. We like what we think is the freedom of deciding truth in the moment. Oh, what a tragedy that leads us into, Lord. That never affirms the great things of life. It never affirms the great love of God. It never affirms to us, Lord, the things that we need to enjoy this life and be prepared for the next. I pray that, Lord, where we have used doubts or we have just kind of been very quiet about our commitment to the scriptures and, and absolute truth, I pray we get a courageous backbone. One that is ready to say no. I'm not going to pretend I understand everything written in it, but I know this book is God's Word. I know it's God's Word, and I declare it's God's Word, and I state to myself before you, Lord, it will be your Word that trumps all the world's wisdom and its worldviews. Father, I pray for all of us going through this campaign. May the Scriptures come alive. May the Holy Spirit just so grab us and may it just bring it again a love and a passion show us things wake us up to truth in Christ's name I pray amen thanks for listening if you find this program helpful or would like to learn more please give us a call 780-539-0572 or email mail at peopleschurchgp.com.